Well, my name is Ben, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Let me add my welcome to the one I hope you just received. So glad to be here with you. Um, it's wonderful to be worshiping with you. Just a couple of announcements before we turn our attention to God's Word today. Um, the first is that we're continuing our educational hours. And like everything at Grace, you can miss some and still join. And so if you didn't go to the first one, you should come to the second one. If you only make the last one, you're doing great. And so from 9.30 to 10.30, two classes, one on uh, discipleship, just what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, and the second on parenting adult children, doing life with your adult children. And so if any of those two classes interest you, please join us. We have men and women's Bible studies starting this week, women's Bible studies on Lamentations, 1 Peter, how to study the Bible, men's Bible study on the Old Testament minor prophets. Uh, Get to a Bible study. Get into the Word. And then finally, mark your calendar for Fall Fest. So it's it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's Fall Fest, October 8th, Camp Sunshine, games, hayrack rides, s'mores, hot dogs, bring a side to share. I think they'll probably be chili and cinnamon roll. Looking for volunteers to provide chili and cinnamon roll and event set up. <laughs> no, come help. Uh, this family event, which has been so meaningful to us, mark your calendars, Fall Fest, Sunday, October 8th. You can find more opportunities to get connected at the events tab at gracepca.com. And that's enough of that. Let's take a moment and quiet ourselves, gather our divided hearts, and unite them in the direction of the Lord. Let me pray for us, friends. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, we turn our attention to your word and to a text in it that has often been misused, uh, abused, and sometimes simply misunderstood. And so we ask you today for your help as we seek to understand it. And that you would give us wisdom and discernment and insight into how we might engage the conversation you want us to have about the greatness of Jesus so that more and more of our lives and our everyday relationships will reflect his heart and his love. And so would you lead us today? We ask you in Christ's name, amen. All right, we find ourselves in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, reading verses 18 uh, through chapter 4, verse 1. Starting in Colossians three eighteen, this is God's word. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So just a few loaded terms and ideas in there. Number of little landmines to navigate together and delicate topics. And so we'll have to take our time and slowly make our way through. So we'll spend the next five weeks in this text talking about singleness and marriage, the relationship between a husband and wife, being a parent. We'll look at the book of Philemon to see what the Apostle Paul has to say in the end about slavery. When there have been texts that have been misused, abused, or misunderstood, you need to take your time. And so I'll ask you to be patient with me. I almost certainly will not address all of your questions today. In fact, I may raise some new ones. My hope in all of it is to give us ears to hear. The temptation, of course, is as a 21st century person to get stuck on a particular word or phrase and miss the heart of what Paul is saying, which is as revolutionary in the 21st century as it was in the first. Paul speaks here of a revolutionary redistribution of power, but not from one person to another. All earthly power in our relationships is taken and placed in its rightful place on the Lord Jesus Christ. And from his place of power, he relativizes human power, even as he transforms and redeems our systems and structures of power. We're going to see how this works But to really hear it, we need to have first century ears, because the things that offend us are probably the least offensive to those in the first century, and the things that seem benign to us were revolutionary to them. And so the thought experiment for us this morning is to ask, how would they have heard it? To imagine ourselves, to put on our imagination caps And imagine that we are around a first century table, which was a house church, which included husbands, wives, children, and servants, 
they all would have been considered a part of the first century household. You will have just shared an agape meal together, and now you're hearing this letter from Paul read. How would they have heard it in that context? The first thing I want to say is that the form of this text would have been very familiar to them. The second thing I would want to say is that the content would have been rather shocking. First, the form would have been familiar. It's almost universally understood that when Paul writes here about the household, he's referencing and responding to well-known codes of conduct in the Roman world. Codes written by Roman philosophers like Aristotle and found in Roman legal code. You can still find these household codes today online. I went and read them, and wow, isn't it interesting reading? So they're preserved for us. Go find it after the service. And these codes dictate how Roman hoes were meant to be ordered. And they would always focus on three relationships. The relationships between a husband and a wife, children and a father, and slaves and masters. It should be noted that these codes were always written and directed to the father because the father was the one with all the rights and power. The father figure would have been called something like the, the paterfamilia or head of the household and he had certain rights and privileges that no one else had. When it came to power in the family, he held all the cards and these powers were called the patria protestas or fatherly powers, and they included things like this. The father's right to expose infant, unwanted children, to leave them outside in the cold, especially girls. They had a right to sell a son into slavery when they wanted to. They had the right to administer physical punishment to household members, and to hand over a household member accused of wrongdoing, uh, wrongdoing for punishment to others. They had the right to end the marriage of their children and to violently take the wife of his child, grandchild, or slave without legal consequences, provided there was in that culture good reason. When it came to power... The father held all the cards. He could kill. He could sell. After all, the people were his property, and he had sole authority over his house. This isn't to say that every man used or abused these powers. And it isn't to say that every household was tyrannical in the way that it was run. But it is to say that power was pretty one-sided held by men and a certain class of men. Others were seen as inferior, unable to rule. Women, for instance, quote, lacked the moral courage and rationality to implement true order. That is not me. That's, that's Aristotle. 
And we have writings from Roman men praising fate and fortune. This comes from actual writing from the first century. Thanks to fortune first, that I was born a human and not one of the brutes. Next, that I was born a man and not a woman. And thirdly, a Greek and not a barbarian. All this in the backgrounds of our mind so that they may be appropriately blown. So that we can imagine ourselves at that table hearing Colossians 3, 11, and 12 read just a few verses earlier. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. You can pair that with something like Galatians 3.28, which is more famous and includes male and female, no male nor female. And you recognize in this context that this is wildly revolutionary language that Paul is using. I imagine being at that table and a wife now looking at a husband, a child now looking at a father, a servant looking around the table and thinking one in Christ, all in the same household, wondering how does this change things at home? The form would have been familiar, the content would have been shocking. And the first word would have been shocking in and of itself, and the first word is wives. Notice how the passage is structured. Three sets of relationships, and in each case, the person with the least cultural power is addressed and addressed first in every case. Let's just say that in ancient Greece and Rome, this is not how these codes were written. They were written to men for men because men were the ones with the moral courage and rationality to implement true order. And so to hear Paul simply say, wives, children, bondservants, What is he saying to everyone in that room? You have equal dignity in this family. Moral courage. Rationality. You have volition, will, and power. And notice that in each case, the person with the least cultural power is not only addressed, but addressed first. And it's worth a moment to stop and just ask the question, what is it about Christianity that would make that difference? That would make Paul make that choice? And what is Paul communicating to the family around the table by doing that? It's at least, that the, it's at least this, the gracious dignity that God bestows upon those that society forgets. You are a part of this family. There's a dignifying here, a lifting up. You might even say that Paul is following his Savior Jesus 
who honored women and sat by them at wells when it was culturally suspect to do so, who when children were brought to him and thought to be a bother that he rebuked the disciples and said, let the children come to me, and when he took the form of a servant himself and said, I've come to serve. He addresses them. And notice that each time Paul addresses those with less cultural power, he speaks to them not as those under the authority of the one with power, cultural power, but as those under the authority of Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Scott McKnight and others say that the word fitting here is, it means in the manner of. And so, wives, when you put your life up, the shape of your life, and you put it next to Christ in the shape of his life, it fits. It corresponds. Your life corresponds with Jesus' life. A life patterned on Christ. A life of patterned on his humility and submission. We'll say more about the word submit. But just to remember that submission isn't a gender thing. It's a Jesus thing. I get it that a word like submit makes us squirm and understandably so. But I would argue that this has to do more with the historic abuses of scripture rather than what the Bible actually says. Our portrait for loving, self-sacrificial submission is Jesus. Was Jesus weak or pathetic? Do we dominate or boss Jesus around because he submitted to us? Absolutely not. The call is to emulate the king and to be like him. Let his life shape yours Let it shape the way you express yourself towards your husband. Let it shape the way you understand what you're doing in Roman culture. This is what Paul is doing. Emulate Jesus. It says, children, obey your parents. Why? Because they're always right? Because they're awesome? No, because this pleases the Lord. Because you long to please the Lord Jesus Christ who loved you and gave himself up for you in perfect obedience to his Father. Bondservants, whatever you do, work heartily for your masters? No. To the Lord and not to men. Work for the one who wasn't afraid to wash feet before he washed away our sins. Because he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The calling in each case is to submit to Jesus and to follow him and serve him and be like him. In the same way, those with cultural power are not told about the privileges they have, but they too are countered with responsibilities. They too are under authority, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
consider how the passage ends. Masters, which is the word kurios, it's just the word Lord, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master or Lord in heaven. That's how it ends, with a reminder that you have a master. Or you could say that you too are a bondservant and slave. Remember too that you were bought with a price. And in light of that love, which is just the word agape, true Christ-like love and sacrificial service, be gentle, encourage, lift up, don't embitter, give yourself away. So that in the end, the one with societal advantage, the person who has all the power, is also being called to emulate the one who has true power over them. And then finally notice that locating the one with true power is the point of the whole thing. The lordship of Christ is what ties and binds all of it together. It is the very heart of the passage. Seven times in nine verses, the word Lord is mentioned in reference to Jesus Christ. It is, in this text, Paul's main point. And it's the key to unlocking the text. The Lordship of Christ sits at the center of human relationships. And when it does that, It relativizes human power even as it transforms and redeems it. The lordship of Christ and how our Lord uses power. That's the melody of this passage. Even as it's the melody of Colossians as a whole. From the very beginning, Paul has been telling us about the supremacy of Jesus. It's the main point of the book. He is the Lord of all things. He is the beginning, the firstborn of all creation. He's the one who holds it all together, and through his sacrifice on the cross, he's bringing everything that is broken and weaving it back together. And one day, every knee and tongue, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He's Lord. We might say this. He is the head of our household. He is our pater familia. He is the father of our house. And yet he was the one who served us. The son of man did not come, he said, to be served but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. In fact, the whole context of that wonderful verse might be important for us to read this morning, so I'll go ahead and do it. Jesus called his disciples together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there is a great redistribution of power taking place, but we're not replacing one human Lord with another human Lord. We're not replacing one tyrant with another tyrant. All authority and power is given to its rightful place to Jesus. And under his lordship, everyone is rushing from their social position to serve others, to emulate him by giving away their life and their love. And the further up the ladder you go, the more self-sacrificial love you're supposed to find, which in turn seeds downward to those beneath in the margins of society. You want to be great? You want to be influential? You want to be a leader in your home, in your church, in your workplace? You must become a slave to all. It's a radical rethinking of power dynamics. Not around who has the power, which is the question we want to ask and have answered. But it's a rethinking and reworking of how power and greatness work. The church is being taught to ask new questions. Not how do I get more power, but how do we more and more give our power away? It's a revolutionary thought. You see, then, like now, power was at the heart of so much brokenness and pain. The ancient world was marked by a desperate, bloodthirsty struggle to seize control of power, both on a macro and micro level. Relational power, economic power, social power, cultural power, spiritual power. Emperors and politicians struggling to maintain a death grip on their power to rule. The rich wanting desperately to maintain the power of luxury afforded to them by their wealth. And those in positions of cultural privilege and power were wary to forfeit the power into which they had been born. Here's the thing. Not a lot has changed. It's what causes societal panic over political elections. It's what makes some people with societal power panic when they heard, hear the word privilege. It's what compels internet hysteria and social media backbiting and violent protests in our streets and the current animosity that's experienced between members of the opposite sex. And maybe that's a good example of the power struggles in our culture. It encapsulates the whole thing wonderfully because today we're being given a story of extremes. You have the raging war between the toxic masculinity of the woman-hating alt-right men activist trolls, and then you have the third wave radical feminists hell-bent on tearing the male enemy from their inherently oppressive thrones. And yes, I'm using stereotypes. I'm doing it on purpose. And this narrative of extremes inevitably seeps into relationships between women and men, into the church, into marriages and families, until Christians in their panic react 
The powerful men worry that the women are coming to dethrone them. And the radicalized women suspect that anyone with a Y chromosome is inherently evil. Consider Paul. Paul argues that biblical marriage is neither the oppressive patriarchy of fundamentalism, nor is it the ugly power struggle of progressivism, which pits chauvinists against radical feminists. Because in both extremes, the question is about who has the power and how do I get more of it? But in Paul's paradigm, both men and women are rushing to give their power away. The husband who serves his master Jesus and, and does it well by not overpowering, not lording over, not bossing or domineering or violating the equality of his wife, he empties himself. He loves her, serves her, empowers her in her God-given calling. And the wife, the party with the less cultural power or privilege, then and now responds to her husband's self-sacrificial love in turn by giving him the same No one reaching for power, everyone laying it down. It's not even about sharing power. It's about giving up life and love for the sake of the other. Or consider his directions to bond servants and masters. So much to say about slavery in the scriptures. And first of all, it's not the same idea of slavery that we have in our tragic past of our country. It was more like indentured servitude, but hey, slavery is slavery and there's no way to make it palatable. And so we ask, well, why didn't Paul just end the whole thing and say within this Christian house, there should be no slavery? Well, we need to realize that we've grown up in a culture that has some social political power, even if our power is declining. But we need to remember that Paul is writing to a beleaguered minority He's writing to oppressed people. The church was for the most part persecuted across the ancient world. And there was barely any of them at this point. So few that at this point there was no cultural sway. It would have made no sense for Paul to direct the church to overthrow the institution of first century slavery. They had no power to do so. So instead Paul does something even more intelligent and subversive. He creates new paradigms for power and relationship that seed all the way down to the the relationship between slaves and masters. Rather than going straight for the system, which was unrealistic and foolhardy, Paul goes for the hearts of the people to steward a new way of life. A new way of life that will inevitably dismantle the power dynamic of slavery between disciples of Jesus. Because if slaves and masters, like husbands and wives, are rushing to serve one another, if they're tripping over themselves to give themselves away, if they in humility regard others as better than themselves, as Paul commanded, then the typical relational dynamics of slavery would become increasingly untenable and would eventually fall away altogether. There would be, as Paul wrote, neither slave nor free, but Christ would be all and in all. Christ envisions, or Paul envisions, a radical alternative society where in the midst of a violent world desperate for more power, the church becomes an incredible outpost of self-sacrificial love in which even the power dynamic between slaves and masters is being leveled by the eagerness of Christians to value others above themselves. 
Consider his words in Philippians. Do nothing, dear ones, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others. Above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. The point is, and you're like, well, finally. If we were to actually do this, what else would have to change? Could things like racism or sexism survive such a teaching like this? Could greed or isolation or flakiness? How could one keep up the passive-aggressive shame tweets and venomous Instagram comments when they're valuing others above themselves, even those they disagree with? Would we be able to worry about whether or not we're getting enough money or whether someone else has too much? Could anyone really pitch a royal fit about their own precious rights when they're constantly aware of the fact that God gave up all his power and glory in order to become nothing to die for their sake? It's the question in front of us. If, this, if, if Jesus is Lord... What changes? What has to change? In my marriage, with my relationship with my kid, my life as a single person, in my life at work. Brothers and sisters, there's a lot left to say. And maybe I didn't answer your question. Maybe I raised some new ones. Be patient with me as we get into the series But three things to think of as we move forward. Three application points very quickly. First is who are you being called to serve? Serve. Christianity is a life of service. Fitting of our life in the Lord. Second. Self-assess. As I think about this letter being written to little family units, I think it would have stirred some stuff up in the ancient world. There would have been some kids that say, my, my dad or mom, they haven't been treating me well. There would have been wives who are now able to say, my husband isn't treating me well. And maybe you're in a relationship that is a Christian relationship where your parents aren't treating you well or your husband isn't treating you well. And this series will be an opportunity for you to say, this is happening and can you help? For some of us, we'll recognize that there's things in our own hearts that need to change. Ways that we're like our dad or our mom, and we never thought it would come to that. (laughs) But Jesus is in our heart, but Grandpa is in our bones, and we get mean sometimes. This will be a time to deal with that too. I had a conversation with my kids this week. I said, who has power in our house? They said, Mom and Dad. I said, how do Mom and Dad use power? And Eleanor said, you take screens away. I said, well, that's part of it. I said, is that the best way to use power? And Abel said, no. And I said, well, what would you guys do if you had power? And Eleanor said, I would take screens away. 
And I said, do you guys feel like you have power? And they said, no. And I said, well, I want, what do you think Jesus would want us to do with our power? And Abel said, I think he would want us to use it wisely. And Eleanor said, I think he would want us to do good. Conversations between husbands and wives, roommates and parents about power and how it's playing out in our homes. Serve, assess, and finally pray. My hope is that at the end of this series, we have five weeks to do it, that every individual in this church would write a prayer request online to the leadership and prayer teams of this church about how this sermon series is affecting you and how you need to change, what you need help with. Overwhelm us with prayer. I want to pray for all of you about this in our homes. Jesus is the Lord of our house. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love, your graciousness, and your goodness. Thank you so much that you have us talk about hard things and real, just real life things. Thank you that you don't... Um, that you change the com- thank you that you change the conversation <laughs> from who has the power to those who want to be great will be the greatest servants among you and i just pray for every individual in this church single and married child and parent that you would be at work in our hearts mightily uh, during this series so that our lives might reflect more and more of the gospel. Help us to understand how that might work. We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen.